CD6. The hooded figure reached down with one hand and released a rope ladder. In its other hand, it held a silver rod, which had about it the unmistakable air of something designed for killing people. Rinswin's first impression was reinforced when the figure raised the stick and waved it carelessly towards the shore. A section of rock vanished, leaving a small grey haze of nothingness. That's so you don't think I'm afraid to use it, said the figure. Don't think you're afraid, said Rinswin. The hooded figure snorted. We know all about you, Rincewind the magician. You are a man of great cunning and artifice. You laugh in the face of death. Your affected air of craven cowardice does not fool me. It fooled Rincewind. I, he began, and paled as the nothingness stick was turned towards him. I see you know all about me, he finished weakly, and sat down heavily on the slippery surface. He and Twoflower, under instructions from the hooded commander, strapped themselves down to rings set in the transparent disc. "'If you make the merest suggestion of weaving a spell,' said the darkness under the hood, "'you die. Third quadrant, reconcile. Ninth quadrant, redouble. Forward all!' A wall of water shot into the air behind Rincewind, and the disc jerked suddenly. The dreadful presence of the sea troll had probably concentrated the hydrophobes' minds wonderfully, because it then rose at a very steep angle and didn't begin level flight until it was a dozen fathoms above the waves. Rincewind glanced down through the transparent surface and wished he hadn't. "'Well, off again, then,' said Twoflower cheerfully. He turned and waved at the troll, now no more than a speck on the edge of the world. Rincewind glared at him. "'Doesn't anything ever worry you?' he asked. "'We're still alive, aren't we?' asked Twoflower. "'And you yourself said they wouldn't be going to all this trouble "'if we were just going to be slaves. "'I expect Tethys was exaggerating. "'I expect it's all a misunderstanding. "'I expect we'll be sent home. "'After we've seen Krull, of course. "'And I must say, it all sounds fascinating.' "'Ah, uh, yes,' said Rincewind in a hollow voice. "'Fascinating.' "'He was thinking, "'I've seen excitement and I've seen boredom, "'and boredom was best.' Had either of them happened to look down at that moment, they would have noticed a strange V-shaped wave surging through the water far below them, its apex pointing directly at Tethys's island. But they weren't looking. The twenty-four hydrophobic magicians were looking, but to them it was just another piece of dreadfulness, not really any different from the liquid horror around it. They were probably right. Sometime before all this, the blazing pirate ship had hissed under the waves and started the long, slow slide towards the distant ooze. It was more distant than average, because directly under the stricken keel was the Gorana Trench, a chasm in the disk's surface that was so black, so deep, and so reputedly evil, that even the Krakens went there fearfully, and in pairs. In less reputedly evil chasms, the fish went about with natural lights on their heads, and on the whole managed quite well. In Gorana, they left them unlit, and insofar as it is possible for something without legs to creep, they crept. They tended to bump into things, too. Horrible things. The water around the ship turned from green to purple, from purple to black, from black to a darkness so complete that blackness itself seemed merely grey by comparison. Most of its timbers had already been crushed into splinters under the intense pressure. It spiralled past groves of nightmare polyps and drifting forests of seaweed which glowed with faint, diseased colours. 
Things brushed it briefly with soft, cold tentacles as they darted away into the freezing silence. Something rose up from the murk and ate it in one mouthful. Some time later, the islanders on a little rimwood atoll were amazed to find, washed into their little local lagoon, the wave-rocked corpse of a hideous sea monster, all beaks, eyes and tentacles. They were further astonished at its size, since it was rather larger than their village. But their surprise was tiny compared to the huge, stricken expression on the face of the dead monster, which appeared to have been trampled to death. Somewhat further rimward of the atoll, a couple of little boats, trolling a net for the ferocious free-swimming oysters which abounded in those seas, caught something that dragged both vessels for several miles before one captain had the presence of mind to sever the lines. But even his bewilderment was as nothing compared to that of the islanders on the last atoll in the archipelago. During the following night they were awakened by a terrific crashing and splintering noise coming from their minute jungle. When some of the bolder spirits went to investigate in the morning, they found that the trees had been smashed in a broad swathe that started on the hubmost shore of the atoll and made a line of total destruction pointing precisely edgewise, littered with broken lianas, crushed bushes and a few bewildered and angry oysters. They were high enough now to see the wide curve of the rim sweeping away from them, lapped by the fluffy clouds that mercifully hid the waterfall for most of the time. From up here, the sea, a deep blue dappled with cloud shadows, looked almost inviting. Rincewind shuddered. Excuse me, he said. The hooded figure turned from its contemplation of the distant haze and raised its wand threateningly. I don't want to use this, it said. You don't, said Rincewind. What is it anyway? said Two Flower. Ajendura's wand of utter negativity, said Rincewind, and I wish you'd stop waving it about. It might go off, he added, nodding at the wand's glittering point. I mean, it's all very flattering, all this magic being used just for our benefit, but there's no need to go quite so far. And shut up! The figure reached up and pulled back its hood, revealing itself to be a most unusually tinted young woman. Her skin was black, not the dark brown of Urabewe or the polished blue-black of monsoon-haunted Clatch, but the deep black of midnight at the bottom of a cave. Her hair and eyebrows were the colour of moonlight. There was the same pale sheen around her lips. She looked about fifteen and very frightened. Rincewind couldn't help noticing that the hand holding the wand was shaking. This was because a piece of sudden death, wobbling uncertainly a mere five feet from your nose, is very hard to miss. It dawned on him, very slowly, because it was a completely new sensation, that someone in the world was frightened of him. The complete reverse was so often the case that he had come to think of it as a kind of natural law. "'What is your name?' he said, as reassuringly as he could manage. She might be frightened, but she did have the wand." If I had a wand like that, he thought, I wouldn't be frightened of anything. So what in creation can she imagine I could do? My name is Immaterial, she said. That's a pretty name, said Rincewind. Where are you taking us and why? I can't see any harm in your telling us. You are being brought to Krull, said the girl. And don't mock me, Hublander, else I'll use the wand. I must bring you in alive, but no one said anything about bringing you in whole. My name is Marchesa, and I am a wizard of the fifth level, do you understand? Well, since you know all about me, then you know that I never even made it to Neophyte, 
said Rincewind. "'I'm not even a wizard, really.' He caught Two Flowers' astonished expression, and added hastily, "'Just a, a wizard of sorts.' "'You can't do magic, because one of the eight great spells is indelibly lodged in your mind.' said Marchesa, shifting her balance gracefully as the great lens described a wide arc over the sea. That's why you were thrown out of Unseen University. We know. But you said just now that he was a magician of great cunning and artifice, protested Twoflower. Yes, because anyone who survives all that he has survived, most of which was brought on himself by his tendency to think of himself as a wizard. Well, he must be some kind of magician, said Marchesa. "'I warn you, Rincewind, if you give me the merest suspicion "'that you are intoning the great spell, I really will kill you.' "'She scowled at him nervously. "'Seems to me your best course would be just to, you know, drop us off somewhere,' said Rincewind. "'I mean, thanks for rescuing us and everything, "'so if you'd just let us get on with leading our lives, I'm sure we'd all—' "'I hope you're not proposing to enslave us,' said Twoflower. "'Marchesa looked genuinely shocked. "'Certainly not.' "'Whatever could have given you that idea, "'your lives in Kral will be rich, uh, full, and comfortable.' "'Oh, good,' said Rincewind. "'Just not very long.' Kral turned out to be a large island, "'quite mountainous and heavily wooded, "'with pleasant white buildings visible here and there among the trees. "'The land sloped gradually up towards the rim, "'so that the highest point in Kral in fact slightly overhung the edge.' Here the Krullians had built their major city, also called Krull, and since so much of their building material had been salvaged from the circumference, the houses of Krull had a decidedly nautical persuasion. To put it bluntly, entire ships had been mortised artfully together and converted into buildings. Triremes, dows and caravels protruded at strange angles from the general wooden chaos. Painted figureheads and hublandish dragon prows reminded the citizens of Krull that their good fortune stemmed from the sea. Barkentines and Caracks lent a distinctive shape to the larger buildings, and so the city rose tier on tier between the blue-green ocean of the disk and the soft cloud sea of the edge, the eight colours of the rainbow reflected in every window and in the many telescope lenses of the city's multitude of astronomers. "'It's absolutely awful,' said Rincewind gloomily. The lens was approaching now along the very lip of the rimfall. The island not only got higher as it neared the edge, it got narrower too, so that the lens was able to remain over water until it was very near the city. The parapet along the edgewise cliff was dotted with gantries projecting into nothingness. The lens glided smoothly towards one of them and docked with it as smoothly as a boat might glide up to a quay. Four guards with the same moonlight hair and night-black faces as Marchesa were waiting. They did not appear to be armed, but as Two Flower and Rincewind stumbled onto the parapet, they were each grabbed by the arms and held quite firmly enough for any thought of escape to be instantly dismissed. Then Marchesa and the watching hydrophobic wizards were quickly left behind, and the guards and their prisoners set off briskly along a lane that wound between the ship houses. Soon it led downwards into what turned out to be a palace of some sort, half hewn out of the rock of the cliff itself. Rincewind was vaguely aware of brightly lit tunnels and courtyards open to the distant sky. A few elderly men, their robes covered in mysterious occult symbols, stood aside and watched with interest as the sextet passed. Several times Rincewind noticed hydrophobes. Their ingrained expressions of self-revulsion at their own body fluids was distinctive, and here and there trudging men who could only be slaves. He didn't have much time to reflect on all this before a door was opened ahead of them and they were pushed gently but firmly into a room. Then the door slammed behind them. 
Rincewind and Twoflower regained their balance and stared around the room in which they now found themselves. "'Gosh!' said Twoflower ineffectually after a pause during which he had tried unsuccessfully to find a better word. "'This is a prison cell?' wondered Rincewind aloud. "'All that gold and silk and stuff,' Twoflower added. "'I've never seen anything like it.' In the centre of the richly decorated room, on a carpet that was so deep and furry that Rincewind trod on it gingerly lest it be some kind of shaggy, floor-loving beast, was a long, gleaming table laden with food. Most were fish dishes, including the biggest and most ornately prepared lobster Rincewind had ever seen. But there was also plenty of bowls and platters piled with strange creations that he'd never seen before. He reached out cautiously and picked up some sort of purple fruit crusted with green crystals. "'Candid sea urchin,' said a cracked, cheerful voice behind him. "'A great delicacy.' He dropped it quickly and turned around. An old man had stepped out from behind the heavy curtains. He was tall, thin, and looked almost benign compared to some of the faces Rincewind had seen recently. "'The puree of sea cucumbers is very good, too,' said the face conversationally. "'Those little green bits are baby starfish.' "'Thank you for telling me,' said Rincewind, weakly. "'Actually, they're rather good,' said Twoflower, his mouth full. "'I thought you liked seafood.' "'Yes, I thought I did,' said Rincewind. "'What's this wine? Crushed octopus eyeballs?' <laughs> "'Sea grape,' said the old man. "'Great,' said Rincewind, and swallowed a glassful. Hmm, not bad. A bit salty, maybe.' "'Sea grape is a kind of small jellyfish,' explained the stranger. "'And now I really think I should introduce myself. "'Why has your friend gone that strange colour? "'Culture shock, I imagine,' said Twoflower. "'What did you say your name was?' "'I didn't. It's Gahartra. I'm the guest master, you see. "'It is my pleasant task to make sure that your stay here is as delightful as possible.' He bowed. If there is anything you want, you have only to say. Two flowers sat down on an ornate mother-of-pearl chair with a glass of oily wine in one hand and a crystallised squid in the other. He frowned. I think I've missed something along the way, he said. First we were told we were going to be slaves. <laughs> a base canard, interrupted Garhartra. What's a canard? said Two Flower. I think it's a kind of duck said Rincewind from the far end of the long table. Are these biscuits made of something really nauseating, do you suppose? And then we were rescued at great magical expense. They're made of pressed seaweed, snapped the guest master. But then we're threatened, also at vast expenditure of magic. Yes, I thought it would be something like seaweed, agreed Rincewind. They certainly taste like seaweed would if anyone was masochistic enough to eat seaweed. And then we're manhandled by guards and thrown in here. <laughs> "'Pushed gently,' corrected Garhartra. "'Which turned out to be this amazingly rich room, "'and there's all this food and a man saying he's devoting his life to making us happy,' Twoflower concluded. "'What I'm getting at is this sort of lack of consistency.' Ah, said Rincewind. "'What he means is, are you about to start being generally unpleasant again? "'Is this just a break for lunch?' Garhartra held up his hands reassuringly. "'Please, please,' he protested. "'It was just necessary to get you here as soon as possible. "'We certainly do not want to enslave you. "'Please be reassured on that score.' "'Well, fine,' said Rincewind. 
Yes, you will in fact be sacrificed, Gahatra continued placidly. Sacrificed? You're going to kill us, shouted the wizard. Kill? Yes, yes, of course, certainly. It would hardly be a sacrifice if we didn't, would it? <laughs> but don't worry, it'll be comparatively painless. Comparatively? Compared to what? said Rincewind. He picked up a tall green bottle that was full of sea-grape jellyfish wine and hurled it hard at the guestmaster, who flung up a hand as if to protect himself. There was a crackle of octarine flame from his fingers, and the air suddenly took on the thick, greasy feel that indicated a powerful magical discharge. The flung bottle slowed and then stopped in mid-air, rotating gently. At the same time, an invisible force picked Rincewind up and hurled him down the length of the room, pinning him awkwardly halfway up the far wall with no breath left in his body. He hung there with his mouth open, in rage and astonishment. Garhartra lowered his hand and brushed it slowly on his robe. "'I didn't enjoy doing that, you know,' he said. "'I could tell,' muttered Rincewind. "'But what do you want to sacrifice us for?' asked Two Flower. "'You hardly know us.' "'That's rather the point, isn't it? "'It's not very good manners to sacrifice a friend. "'Besides, you were uh, uh, specified. "'I don't know a lot about the god in question, "'but he was quite clear on that point. "'Look, I must be running along now. "'So much to organise, you know how it is.' "'The guestmaster opened the door and then peered back around it. "'Please, make yourselves comfortable and don't worry.' "'But you haven't actually told us anything.' wailed Two Flower. It's not really worth it, is it? What with you being sacrificed in the morning? said Gahatra. It's hardly worth the bother of knowing, really. Sleep well. Comparatively well, anyway. He shut the door. A brief octarine flicker of balefire around it suggested that it had now been sealed beyond the skills of any earthly locksmith. Gling! Clang, tang, went the bells along the circumfence in the moonlit, rimfall roaring night. Turton, length man of the 45th length, hadn't heard such a clashing since the night a giant kraken had been swept into the fence five years ago. He leaned out of his hut, which for the lack of any convenient aot on this length had been built on wooden piles driven into the seabed, and stared into the darkness. Once or twice he thought he could see movement far off. Strictly speaking, he should row out to see what was causing the din, but here in the clammy darkness it didn't seem like an astoundingly good idea, so he slammed the door, wrapped some sacking round the madly jingling bells, and tried to get back to sleep. That didn't work, because even the top strand of the fence was thrumming now, as if something big and heavy was bouncing on it. After staring at the ceiling for a few minutes, and trying hard not to think of great long tentacles and pond-sized eyes, Turton blew out the lantern, and opened the door a crack. Something was coming along the fence, in giant loping bounds that covered metres at a time. It loomed up at him, and for a moment Turton saw something rectangular, multi-legged, shaggy with seaweed, and although it had absolutely no features from which he could have deduced this, it was also very angry indeed. The hut was smashed to fragments as the monster charged through it, although Turton survived by clinging to the circumfence. Some weeks later he was picked up by a returning salvage fleet, subsequently escaped from Krull on a hijacked lens, having developed hydrophobia to an astonishing degree, and after a number of adventures eventually found his way to the Great Neff, an area of the disk so dry that it actually has negative rainfall, which he nevertheless considered uncomfortably damp. 
Have you tried the door? Yes, said Two Flower, and it isn't any less locked than it was the last time you asked. There's the window, though. A great way of escape, muttered Rincewind from his perch halfway up the wall. You said it looks out over the edge. Just step out, eh, and plunge through space and maybe freeze solid or hit some other world at incredible speeds or plunge wildly into the burning heart of a sun. Worth a try, said Two Flower. Want a seaweed biscuit? No. When are you coming down? Rincewind snarled. This was partly an embarrassment. Gahartra's spell had been the little-used and hard-to-master Atavar's personal gravitational upset, the practical result of which was that until it wore off, Rincewind's body was convinced that down lay at 90 degrees to that direction normally accepted as of a downward persuasion by the majority of the disc's inhabitants. He was, in fact, standing on the wall. Meanwhile, the flung bottle hung supportless in the air a few yards away. In its case, time had... Well, not actually been stopped, but had been slowed by several orders of magnitude, and its trajectory had so far occupied several hours and a couple of inches as far as Two-Flower and Rincewind were concerned. The glass gleamed in the moonlight. Rincewind sighed and tried to make himself comfortable on the wall. "'Why don't you ever worry?' he demanded petulantly. "'Here we are, going to be sacrificed to some god or other in the morning, and you just sit there eating barnacle canapes.' I expect something will turn up, said Two Flower. I mean, it's not as if we know why we're going to be killed, the wizard went on. You'd like to, would you? Did you say that? asked Rincewind. Say what? You're hearing things, said the voice in Rincewind's head. He sat bolt sideways. Who are you? he demanded. Two Flower gave him a worried look. I'm Two Flower, he said. Surely you remember. Rincewind put his head in his hands. It's happened at last, he moaned. I'm going out of my mind. Good idea, said the voice. It's getting pretty crowded in here. The spell pinning Rincewind to the wall vanished with a faint pop. He fell forward and landed in a heap on the floor. Careful, uh, you, you nearly squashed me. Rincewind struggled to his elbows and reached into the pocket of his robe. When he withdrew his hand, the green frog was sitting on it, its eyes oddly luminous in the half-light. You, said Rincewind. Put me down on the floor and stand back. The frog blinked. The wizard did so and dragged a bewildered two-flower out of the way. The room darkened. There was a windy, roaring sound. Streamers of green, purple and doctorine cloud appeared out of nowhere and began to spiral rapidly towards the recumbent amphibian, shedding small bolts of lightning as they whirled. Soon the frog was lost in a golden haze which began to elongate upwards, filling the room with a warm yellow light. Within it was a darker, indistinct shape, which wavered and changed even as they watched and all the time there was the high, brain-curdling whine of a huge magical field. As suddenly as it had appeared, the magical tornado vanished, and there, occupying the space where the frog had been, was a frog. Fantastic, said Rincewind. The frog gazed at him reproachfully. Really amazing, said Rincewind sourly. A frog magically transformed into a frog. Wondrous. Turn around said a voice behind them. It was a soft feminine voice, 
almost an inviting voice, the sort of voice you could have a few drinks with, but it was coming from a spot where there oughtn't to be a voice at all. They managed to turn without really moving, like a couple of statues revolving on plinths. There was a woman standing in the pre-dawn light. She looked... she was... she had a... in point of actual fact, she... Later, Rincewind and Twoflower couldn't quite agree on any single fact about her, except that she had appeared to be beautiful, precisely what physical features made her beautiful they could not definitively state, and that she had green eyes. Not the pale green of ordinary eyes, either. These were the green of fresh emeralds, and as iridescent as a dragonfly. And one of the few genuinely magical facts that Rincewind knew was that no god or goddess, contrary and volatile as they might be in all other respects, could change the colour or nature of their eyes. Late, he began. She raised a hand. You know that if you say my name I must depart, she hissed. Surely you recall that I am the one goddess who comes only when not invoked. Um, uh, y yes, I suppose I do, croaked the wizard, trying not to look at the eyes. You're the one they call the lady. Yes. Are you a goddess, then? said Twoflower, excitedly. I've always wanted to meet one. Rincewind tensed, waiting for the explosion of rage. Instead, the lady merely smiled. Your friend the wizard should introduce us, she said. Rincewind coughed. Um, yeah, he said. This is Twoflower, lady. Uh, he's a tourist. I have attended him on a number of occasions. And uh, Twoflower, this is the lady. Just the lady, right? Nothing else. Don't try and give her any other name, OK? He went on desperately, his eyes darting meaningful glances that were totally lost on the little man. Rincewind shivered. He was not, of course, an atheist. On the disc, the gods dealt severely with atheists. On the few occasions when he had some spare change, he had always made a point of dropping a few coppers into a temple coffer somewhere, on the principle that a man needed all the friends he could get. But usually he didn't bother the gods, and he hoped the gods wouldn't bother him. Life was quite complicated enough. There were two gods, however, who were really terrifying. The rest of the gods were usually only sort of large-scale humans, fond of wine and war and whoring. But fate and the lady were chilling. In the gods' quarter, in Ankh-Morpork, fate had a small, heavy, leaden temple where hollow-eyed and gaunt worshippers met on dark nights for their predestined and fairly pointless rites. There were no temples at all to the lady, although she was arguably the most powerful goddess in the entire history of creation. A few of the more daring members of the Gambler's Guild had once experimented with a form of worship in the deepest cellars of guild headquarters and had all died of penury, murder or just death within the week. She was the goddess who must not be named. Those who sought her never found her, yet she was known to come to the aid of those in greatest need. And then again, sometimes she didn't. She was like that. She didn't like the clicking of rosaries, but was attracted to the sound of dice. No man knew what she looked like, although there were many times when a man who was gambling his life on the turn of the cards would pick up the hand he had been dealt and stare her full in the face. Of course, sometimes he didn't, among all the gods, she was at one and the same time the most courted and the most cursed. "'We don't have gods where I come from,' said Twoflower. "'You do, you know,' said the lady. "'Everyone has gods. You just don't think they're gods.' 
Rincewind shook himself mentally. Look, he said, I don't want to sound impatient, but in a few minutes some people are going to come through that door and take us away and kill us. Yes, said the lady. I suppose you wouldn't tell us why, said Two Flower. Yes, said the lady. The Krullians intend to launch a bronze vessel over the edge of the disk. Their prime purpose is to learn the sex of Artuin the World Turtle. Seems rather pointless, said Rincewind. No. Consider, one day Great Artuin may encounter another member of the species Chelis Galactica, somewhere in the vast night in which we move. Will they fight? Will they mate? A little imagination will show you that the sex of Great Artuin could be very important to us. At least, so the Krallians say. Rincewind tried not to think of world turtles mating. It wasn't completely easy. So, continued the goddess, they intend to launch this ship of space with two voyagers aboard. It will be the culmination of decades of research. It will also be very dangerous for the travellers. And so, in an attempt to reduce the risks, the arch-astronomer of Krull has bargained with fate to sacrifice two men at the moment of launch. Fate, in his turn, has agreed to smile on the spaceship. A neat barter, is it not? And we're the sacrifices, said Rincewind. Yes. I thought fate didn't go in for that sort of bargaining. I thought fate was implacable, said Rincewind. Normally, yes, but you two have been thorns in his side for some time. He specified that the sacrifices should be you. He allowed you to escape from the pirates. He allowed you to drift into the circumference. Fate can be one mean god at times. There was a pause. The frog sighed and wandered off under a table. But you can help us, prompted Two Flower. You amuse me, said the lady. I have a sentimental streak. You'd know that if you were gamblers. So for a little while I rode in a frog's mind, and you kindly rescued me. For as we all know, no one likes to see pathetic and helpless creatures swept to their death. Thank you, said Rincewind. The whole mind of fate is bent against you, said the lady. But all I can do is give you one chance, just one small chance. The rest is up to you. She vanished. Gosh, said Two Flower after a while. That's the first time I've ever seen a goddess. The door swung open. Gahartra entered, holding a wand in front of him. Behind him were two guards, armed more conventionally with swords. Ah, he said conversationally, you are ready, I see. Ready, said a voice inside Rincewind's head. The bottle that the wizard had flung some eight hours earlier had been hanging in the air, imprisoned by magic in its own personal time field. But during all those hours, the original mana of the spell had been slowly leaking away until the total magical energy was no longer sufficient to hold it against the universe's own powerful normality field. And when that happened, reality snapped back in a matter of microseconds. The visible sign of this was that the bottle suddenly completed the last part of its parabola and burst against the side of the guestmaster's head, showering the guards with glass and jellyfish wine. Rincewind grabbed Two Flower's arm, kicked the nearest guard in the groin, and dragged the startled tourist into the corridor. Before the stunned Garhartra had sunk to the floor, his two guests were already pounding across distant flagstones. 
Rincewind skidded around a corner and found himself on a balcony that ran round the four sides of a courtyard. Below them, most of the floor of the yard was taken up by an ornamental pond in which a few terrapins sunbathed among the lily leaves. And ahead of Rincewind were a couple of very surprised wizards, wearing the distinctive dark blue and black robes of trained hydrophobes. One of them, quicker on the uptake than his companion, raised a hand and began the first words of a spell. There was a short, sharp noise by Rincewind's side. Two flower had spat. The hydrophobe screamed and dropped his hand as though it had been stung. The other didn't have time to move before Rincewind was on him, fists swinging wildly. One stiff punch with the weight of terror behind it sent the man tumbling over the balcony rail and into the pond, which did a very strange thing. The water smacked aside as though a large invisible balloon had been dropped into it, and the hydrophobe hung screaming in his own revulsion field. Two Flower watched him in amazement until Rincewind snatched at his shoulder and indicated a likely-looking passage. They hurried down it, leaving the remaining hydrophobe writhing on the floor and snatching at his damp hand. For a while there was some shouting behind them, but they scuttled along a cross corridor and another courtyard and soon left the sounds of pursuit behind. Finally, Rincewind picked a safe-looking door, peered around it, found the room beyond to be unoccupied, dragged Two Flower inside and slammed it behind him. Then he leaned against it, wheezing horribly. We're totally lost in a palace on an island we haven't a hope of leaving, he panted. And what's more, we... Hey! He finished, as the sight of the contents of the room filtered up his deranged optic nerves. Two Flower was already staring at the walls. Because what was so odd about the room was it contained the whole universe. Death sat in his garden, running a whetstone along the edge of his scythe. It was already so sharp that any passing breeze that blew across it was sliced smoothly into two puzzled zephyrs, although breezes were rare indeed in death's silent garden. It lay on a sheltered plateau overlooking the disc world's complex dimensions, and behind it loomed the cold, still, immensely high and brooding mountain of eternity. Swish went the stone. Death hummed a dirge and tapped one bony foot on the frosty flagstones. Someone approached through the dim orchard where the night apples grew, and there came the sickly sweet smell of crushed lilies. Death looked up angrily, and found himself staring into eyes that were black as the inside of a cat, and full of distant stars that had no counterpart among the familiar constellations of the real-time universe. Death and fate looked at each other. Death grinned. He had no alternative, of course, being made of implacable bone. The whetstone sang rhythmically along the blade as he continued his task. "'I have a task for you,' said Fate. His words drifted across Death's scythe and split tidily into two ribbons of consonants and vowels. "'I have tasks enough this day. The white plague abides even now in Pseudopolis, and I am bound there to rescue many of its citizens from his grasp.' Such a one has not been seen these hundred years. I am expected to stalk the streets, as is my duty. I refer to the matter of the little wanderer and the rogue wizard, said Fate softly, seating himself beside Death's black-robed form and staring down at the distant multifaceted jewel which was the disk universe as seen from this extra-dimensional vantage point. The scythe ceased its song. They die in a few hours, said fate. It is fated. 
Death stirred, and the stone began to move again. "'I thought you would be pleased,' said Fate. Death shrugged, a particularly expressive gesture for someone whose visible shape was that of a skeleton. "'I did indeed chase them mightily once, but at last the thought came to me that sooner or later all men must die. Everything dies in the end. I can be robbed but never denied,' I told myself. "'Why worry?' "'I, too, cannot be cheated,' snapped Fate. "'So I have heard,' said Death, still grinning. "'Enough!' shouted Fate, jumping to his feet. "'They will die!' He vanished in a sheet of blue fire. Death nodded to himself and continued his work. After some minutes the edge of the blade seemed to be finished to his satisfaction. He stood up and levelled the scythe at the fat and noisome candle that burned on the edge of the bench, and then, with two deft sweeps, cut the flame into three bright slivers. Death grinned. A short while later he was saddling his white stallion, which lived in a stable at the back of Death's cottage. The beast snuffled at him in a friendly fashion. Though it was crimson-eyed and had flanks like oiled silk, it was nevertheless a real flesh-and-blood horse, and indeed was in all probability better treated than most beasts of burden on the disc. Death was not an unkind master. He weighed very little, and although he often rode back with his saddlebags bulging, they weighed nothing whatsoever. "'All those worlds!' said Twoflower. "'It's fantastic!' Rincewind grunted, and continued to prowl warily around the star-filled room. Twoflower turned to a complicated astrolabe, in the centre of which was the entire great Artuin elephant disc system, wrought in brass and picked out with tiny jewels. Around it, stars and planets wheeled on fine silver wires. "'Fantastic!' he said again. On the walls around him, constellations made of tiny phosphorescent seed pearls had been picked out on vast tapestries made of jet-black velvet, giving the room's occupants the impression of floating in the interstellar gulf. Various easels held huge sketches of Great Artuin, as viewed from various parts of the circumference, with every mighty scale and cratered pockmark meticulously marked in. Twoflower stared about him with a faraway look in his eyes. Rincewind was deeply troubled. What troubled him most of all were the two suits that hung from supports in the centre of the room. He circled them uneasily. They appeared to be made of fine white leather, hung about with straps and brass nozzles and other highly unfamiliar and suspicious contrivances. The leggings ended in high, thick-soled boots, and the arms were shoved into big, supple gauntlets. Strangest of all were the big copper helmets that were obviously supposed to fit on heavy collars around the neck of the suits. The helmets were almost certainly useless for protection. A light sword would have no difficulty in splitting them, even if it didn't hit the ridiculous little glass windows in the front. Each helmet had a crest of white feathers on top, which went absolutely no way at all towards improving their overall appearance. Rincewind was beginning to have the glimmerings of a suspicion about those suits. In front of them was a table covered with celestial charts and scraps of parchment covered with figures. Whoever would be wearing those suits, Rincewind decided, was expecting to boldly go where no man, other than the occasional luckless sailor who didn't really count, had boldly gone before, and he was now beginning to get not just a suspicion, but a horrible premonition. He turned round and found Twoflower looking at him with a speculative expression. No, began Rincewind urgently. Twoflower ignored him. The goddess said two men were going to be sent over the edge, he said, his eyes gleaming. And you remember Tethys the troll saying you'd need some kind of protection? The Kralians have got over that. These are suits of space armour. They don't look very 
roomy to me, said Rincewind hurriedly, and grabbed the tourist by the arm. So if you'd just come on, no sense in staying here. Why must you always panic? asked Two Flower petulantly. Because the whole of my future life just flashed in front of my eyes, and it didn't take very long. And if you don't move now, I'm going to leave without you, because any second now you're going to suggest that we put on... The door opened. Two husky young men stepped into the room. All they were wearing was a pair of woollen pants apiece. One of them was still toweling himself briskly. They both nodded at the two escapees with no apparent surprise. The taller of the two men sat down on one of the benches in front of the seats. He beckoned to Rincewind and said... And this was awkward, because although Rincewind considered himself an expert in most of the tongues of the western segments of the disc, it was the first time that he had ever been addressed in Krullian, and he didn't understand one word of it. Neither did Two Flower, but that did not stop him stepping forward and taking a breath. The speed of light through a magical aura such as the one that surrounded the disc was quite slow, being not much faster than the speed of sound in less highly tuned universes, but it was still the fastest thing around, with the exception, in moments like this, of Rincewind's mind. In an instant he became aware that the tourist was about to try his own peculiar brand of linguistics, which meant that he would speak loudly and slowly in his own language. Rincewind's elbow shot back, knocking the breath from Two Flowers' body. When the little man looked up in pain and astonishment, Rincewind caught his eye and pulled an imaginary tongue out of his mouth and cut it with an imaginary pair of scissors. The second Chelonaut, for such was the profession of the men whose fate it would shortly be to voyage to Great Artuin, looked up from the chart table and watched this in puzzlement. His big heroic brow wrinkled with the effort of speech. Hur you la truin nor he said. Rincewind smiled and nodded and pushed Two Flower in his general direction. With an inward sigh of relief, he saw the tourist pay sudden attention to a big brass telescope that lay on the table. Suten u commanded the seated Chelonaut. Rincewind nodded and smiled and took one of the big copper helmets from the rack and brought it down on the man's head as hard as he possibly could. The Chelonaut fell forward with a soft grunt. The other man took one startled step before Two Flower hit him amateurishly but effectively with the telescope. He crumpled on top of his colleague. Rincewind and Two Flower looked at each other over the carnage. All right snapped Rincewind, aware that he had lost some kind of contest, but not entirely certain what it was. Don't bother to say it. Someone out there is expecting these two guys to come out in the suits in a minute. I suppose they thought we were slaves. Help me hide these behind the drapes and then... and then... We'd better suit up, said Two Flower, picking up the second helmet. Yes, said Rincewind. You know, as soon as I saw the suits, I just knew I'd end up wearing one. Don't ask me how I knew. I suppose it was because it was just about the worst possible thing that was likely to happen. Well, you said yourself we have no way of escaping, said Two Flower, his voice muffled as he put the top half of a suit over his head. Anything's better than being sacrificed. As soon as we get a chance, we run for it, said Rincewind. Don't get any ideas. He thrust an arm savagely into his suit and banged his head on the helmet. He reflected briefly that someone up there was watching over him. Thanks a lot, he said bitterly. At the very edge of the city and country of Krull was a large semicircular amphitheatre with seating for several tens of thousands of people. The arena was only semicircular for the very elegant reason that it overlooked the cloud sea that boiled up from the rimfall far below. And now every seat was occupied, and the crowd was growing restive. 
It had come to see a double sacrifice and also the launching of the great bronze spaceship. Neither event had yet materialised. The arch-astronomer beckoned the master launch controller to him. Um, well, he said, filling a mere four letters with a full lexicon of anger and menace. The master launch controller went pale. No news, Lord, said the launch controller, and added with a brittle brightness, except that your prominence will be pleased to hear that Garhartra has recovered. Um, that is a fact he may come to regret, said the arch-astronomer. Yes, Lord. How much longer do we have? The launch controller glanced at the rapidly climbing sun. Thirty minutes, your prominence. After that, Krull will have revolved away from Great Artuin's tail, and the potent voyager will be doomed to spin away into the interterrapine gulf. I have already set the automatic controls, so... All right, all right, the arch-astronomer said, waving him away. The launch must go ahead. Maintain the watch on the harbour, of course. When the wretched pair are caught, I will personally take a, a great deal of pleasure in executing them myself. Yes, Lord. Uh, the arch-astronomer frowned. What else have you got to say, man? The launch controller swallowed. All this was very unfair on him. He was a practical magician rather than a diplomat, and that was why some wiser brains had seen to it that he would be the one to pass on the news. A monster has come out of the sea, and it's uh, attacking the ships in the harbour, he said. A runner just arrived from there. Uh, uh, a big monster, said the arch-astronomer. Not particularly, although it is said to be exceptionally fierce, Lord. The ruler of Krull and the Circumfence considered this for a moment, then shrugged. The sea is full of monsters, he said. It is one of its prime attributes. Have it dealt with, and, Master Launch Controller, Lord, if I am further vexed, you will recall that two people are due to be sacrificed. I, I may feel generous and increase the number. Yes, Lord, the Master Launch Controller scuttled away, relieved to be out of the autocrat's sight. The potent voyager, no longer the blank bronze shell that had been smashed from the mould a few days earlier, rested in its cradle on top of a wooden tower in the centre of the arena. In front of it, a railway ran down towards the edge, where for the space of a few yards it turned suddenly upwards. The late Dactylos Goldeneyes, who had designed the launching pad as well as the potent voyager itself, had claimed that this last touch was merely to ensure that the ship would not snag on any rocks as it began its long plunge. Maybe it was merely coincidental that it would also, because of that little twitch in the track, leap like a salmon and shine theatrically in the sunlight before disappearing into the cloud sea. There was a fanfare of trumpets at the edge of the arena. The Chelonaut's honour guard appeared, to much cheering from the crowd. Then the white-suited explorers themselves stepped out into the light. It immediately dawned on the arch-astronomer that something was wrong. Heroes always walked in a certain way, for example. They certainly didn't waddle, and one of the Chelonauts was definitely waddling. The roar of the assembled people of Krull was deafening. 
As the Chelonauts and their guards crossed the great arena, passing between the many altars that had been set up for the various wizards and priests of Krull's many sects to ensure the success of the launch, the arch-astronomer frowned. By the time the party was halfway across the floor, his mind had reached a conclusion. By the time the Chelonauts were standing at the foot of the ladder that led to the ship, and was there more than a hint of reluctance about them? The arch-astronomer was on his feet, his words lost in the noise of the crowd. One of his arms shot out and back, fingers spread dramatically in the traditional spell-casting position, and any passing lip-reader who was also familiar with the standard texts on magic would have recognised the opening words of Vestcake's floating curse, and would then have prudently run away. Its final words remained unsaid, however. The arch-astronomer turned in astonishment as a commotion broke out around the big arched entrance to the arena. Guards were running out in the daylight, throwing down their weapons as they scuttled among the altars or vaulted the parapet into the stands. Something emerged behind them, and the crowd around the entrance ceased its raucous cheering and began a silent, determined scramble to get out of the way. The something was a low dome of seaweed, moving slowly but with a sinister sense of purpose. One guard overcame his horror sufficiently to stand in its path and hurl his spear, which landed squarely among the weeds. The crowd cheered, then went deathly silent as the dome surged forward and engulfed the man completely. The arch-astronomer dismissed the half-formed shape of Vestcake's famous curse with a sharp wave of his hand and quickly spoke the words of one of the most powerful spells in his repertoire, the Infernal Combustion Enigma. Octarine fire spiralled around and between his fingers as he shaped the complex rune of the spell in mid-air and sent it, screaming and trailing blue smoke, towards the shape. There was a satisfying explosion, and a gout of flame shot up into the clear morning sky, shedding flakes of burning seaweed on the way. A cloud of smoke and steam concealed the monster for several minutes, and when it cleared, the dome had completely disappeared. There was a large charred circle on the flagstones, however, in which a few clumps of kelp and bladder rack still smouldered. And in the centre of the circle was a perfectly ordinary, if somewhat large, wooden chest. It was not even scorched. Someone on the far side of the arena started to laugh, but the sound was broken off abruptly as the chest rose up on dozens of what could only be called legs and turned to face the arch-astronomer. A perfectly ordinary, if somewhat large, wooden chest does not, of course, have a face with which to face, but this one was quite definitely facing. In precisely the same way as he understood that, the arch-astronomer was also horribly aware that this perfectly normal box was in some indescribable way narrowing its eyes. It began to move resolutely towards him. He shuddered. Uh, magicians! he screamed. Where are my magicians? Around the arena, pale-faced men peeped out from behind altars and under benches. One of the bolder ones, seeing the expression on the arch-astronomer's face, raised an arm tremulously and essayed a hasty thunderbolt. It hissed towards the chest and struck it squarely in a shower of white sparks. That was a signal for every magician, enchanter, and thaumaturgist in Krull to leap up eagerly and, under the terrified eyes of their master, unleash the first spell that came to each desperate mind. Charms curved and whistled through the air. Soon the chest was lost to view again in an expanding cloud of magical particles which billowed out and wreathed it in twisting, disquieting shapes. Spell after spell screamed into the melee. 
Flame and lightning bolts of all eight colours stabbed out brightly from the seething thing that now occupied the space where the box had been. Not since the Mage Wars had so much magic been concentrated on one small area. The air itself wavered and glittered. Spell ricocheted off spell, creating short-lived wild spells whose brief half-life was both weird and uncontrolled. The stones under the heaving mass began to buckle and split. One of them, in fact, turned into something best left undescribed and slunk off into some dismal dimension. Other strange side effects began to manifest themselves. A shower of small lead cubes bounced out of the storm and rolled across the heaving floor, and eldritch shapes gibbered and beckoned obscenely. Four-sided triangles and double-ended circles existed momentarily before merging again into the booming, screaming tower of runaway raw magic that boiled up from the molten flagstones and spread out over Krull. It no longer mattered that most of the magicians had ceased their spell-casting and fled. The Thing was now feeding on the stream of octarine particles that were always at their thickest near the edge of the disk. Throughout the island of Krull, every magical activity failed, as all the available mana in the area was sucked into the cloud, which was already a quarter of a mile high and streaming out into mind-curdling shapes. Hydrophobes on their sea-skimming lenses crashed screaming into the waves. Magic potions turned to mere impure water in their files. Magic swords melted and dripped from their scabbards. But none of this in any way prevented the thing at the base of the cloud, now gleaming mirror-bright in the intensity of the power storm around it, from moving at a steady walking pace towards the arch-astronomer. Rincewind and Twoflower watched in awe from the shelter of potent Voyager's launch tower. The honour party had long since vanished, leaving their weapons scattered behind them. "'Well,' sighed Twoflower at last, "'there goes the luggage,' he sighed. "'Don't you believe it,' said Rincewind. "'Sapient Pearwood is totally impervious to all known forms of magic. "'It's been constructed to follow you anywhere. "'I mean, when you die, if you go to heaven, "'you'll at least have a clean pair of socks in the afterlife. "'But I don't want to die yet, so let's just get going, shall we?' "'Where?' said Twoflower. "'Rincewind picked up a crossbow and a handful of quarrels. "'Anywhere that isn't here,' he said. "'What about the luggage?' "'Don't worry. When the storm has used up all the free magic in the vicinity, it'll just die out.' "'In fact, that was already beginning to happen. "'The billowing cloud was still flowing up from the area, "'but now it had a tenuous, harmless look about it. "'Even as Twoflower stared, it began to flicker uncertainly.' Soon it was a pale ghost. The luggage was now visible as a squat shape among the almost invisible flames. Around it the rapidly cooling stones began to crack and buckle. Twoflower called softly to his luggage. It stopped its stolid progression across the tortured flags and appeared to be listening intently. Then, moving its dozens of feet in an intricate pattern, it turned on its length and headed towards the potent voyager. Rincewind watched it sourly. The luggage had an elemental nature, absolutely no brain, a homicidal attitude towards anything that threatened its master, and he wasn't quite sure that its inside occupied the same space-time framework as its outside. "'Not a mark on it,' said Twoflower cheerfully, as the box settled down in front of him. He pushed open the lid. "'This is a fine time to change your underwear,' snarled Rincewind. "'In a minute all those guards and priests are going to come back, and they're going to be upset, man.' "'Water!' murmured Twoflower. "'The whole box is full of water!' Rincewind peered over his shoulder. There was no sign of clothes, money bags, or any other of the tourists' belongings. The whole box was full of water. 
A wave sprang up from nowhere and lapped over the edge. It hit the flagstones, but instead of spreading out, began to take the shape of a foot. Another foot and the bottom half of a pair of legs followed as more water streamed down, as if filling an invisible mould. A moment later, Tethys, the sea troll, was standing in front of them, blinking. "'I see,' he said at last. "'You two. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised.' He looked round, ignoring their astonished expressions. "'I was just sitting outside my hut, watching the sunset, when this thing came roaring up out of the water and swallowed me,' he said. "'I thought it was rather strange. Where is this place?' "'Kroll,' said Rincewind. He stared hard at the now-closed luggage, which was managing to project a smug expression. Swallowing people was something it did quite frequently, but always when the lid was next opened, there was nothing inside but two flowers' laundry. Savagely, he wrenched the lid up. There was nothing inside but two flowers' laundry. It was perfectly dry. "'Well, well,' said Tethys. He looked up. "'Hey,' he said, "'isn't this the ship they're going to send over the edge? Isn't it? It must be.' An arrow zipped through his chest, leaving a faint ripple. He didn't appear to notice.' Rincewind did. Soldiers were beginning to appear at the edge of the arena, and a number of them were peering around the entrances. Another arrow bounced off the tower behind Two Flower. At this range, the bolts did not have a lot of force, but it would only be a matter of time. Quick, said Two Flower, into the ship. They won't dare fire at that. I knew you were going to suggest that, groaned Rincewind. I just knew it. He aimed a kick at the luggage. It backed off a few inches and opened its lid threateningly. A spear arced out of the sky and trembled to a halt in the woodwork by the wizard's ear. He screamed briefly and scrambled up the ladder after the others. Arrows whistled around them as they came out onto the narrow catwalk that led along the spine of the potent voyager. Two Flower led the way, jogging along with what Rincewind considered to be too much suppressed excitement. Atop the centre of the ship was a large round bronze hatch with hasps round it. The troll and the tourist knelt down and started to work on them. In the heart of the potent voyager, fine sand had been trickling into a carefully designed cup for several hours. Now the cup was filled by exactly the right amount to dip down and upset a carefully balanced weight. The weight swung away, pulling a pin from an intricate little mechanism. A chain began to move. There was a clonk. "'What was that?' said Rincewind urgently. He looked down. The hail of arrows had stopped. The crowd of priests and soldiers were standing motionless, staring intently at the ship. A small, worried man elbowed his way through them and started to shout something. "'What was that?' said Two Flower, busy with a wingnut. "'I thought I heard something,' said Rincewind. "'Look,' he said, "'we'll threaten to damage the thing if they don't let us go, right? "'That's all we're going to do, right?' "'Yeah,' said Two Flower, vaguely. He sat back on his heels. "'That's it,' he said. "'It ought to lift off now.' Several muscular men were swarming up the ladder to the ship. Rincewind recognised the two chelonauts among them. They were carrying swords. I he began. The ship lurched. Then, with infinite slowness, it began to move along the rails. In that moment of black horror, Rincewind saw that Two Flower and the Troll had managed to pull the hatch up. A metal ladder inside led into the cabin below. The Troll disappeared. We've got to get off! whispered Rincewind. Two Flower looked at him, a strange, mad smile on his face. "'Stars!' said the tourist. 
Worlds. The whole damn sky full of worlds. Places no one will ever see. Except me. He stepped through the hatchway. You're totally mad, said Rincewind hoarsely, trying to keep his balance as the ship began to speed up. He turned as one of the Chelonauts tried to leap the gap between the Voyager and the tower, landed on the curving flank of the ship, scrabbled for an instant for purchase, failed to find any, and dropped away with a shriek. The Voyager was travelling quite fast now. Rincewind could see past Two Flower's head to the sunlit cloud sea, and the impossible Rimbo floating tantalisingly beyond it, beckoning fools to venture too far. He also saw a gang of men climbing desperately over the lower slopes of the launching ramp and manhandling a large bulk of timber onto the track in a frantic attempt to derail the ship before it vanished over the edge. The wheels slammed into it, but the only effect was to make the ship rock, two flower to lose his grip on the ladder and fall into the cabin, and the hatch to slam down with the horrible sound of a dozen fiddly little catches snapping into place. Rincewind dived forward and scrabbled at them, whimpering. The cloud sea was much nearer now. The edge itself, a rocky perimeter to the arena, was startlingly close. Rincewind stood up. There was only one thing to do now, and he did it. He panicked, blindly, just as the ship's bogies hit the little upgrade and flung it, sparkling like a salmon, into the sky and over the edge. A few seconds later, there was a thunder of little feet, and the luggage cleared the rim of the world, legs still pumping determinedly, and plunged down into the universe. The End Rincewind woke up and shivered. He was freezing cold. So this is it, he thought. When you die, you go to a cold, damp, misty, freezing place. Hades, where the mournful spirits of the dead troop forever across the sorrowful marshes, corpse lights flickering fitfully in the encircling... Hang on a minute. Surely Hades wasn't this uncomfortable? And he was very uncomfortable indeed. His back ached where a branch was pressing into it. His legs and arms hurt where the twigs had lacerated them. And judging by the way his head was feeling, something hard had recently hit it. If this was Hades, it sure was hell. Hang on a minute. Tree. He concentrated on the word that floated up from his mind. Although the buzzing in his ears and the flashing lights in front of his eyes made this an unexpected achievement. Tree. Wooden thing. That was it. Branches and twigs and things, and Rincewind lying in it. Tree, dripping wet, cold white cloud all around. Underneath, too. Now, that was odd. He was alive and lying covered in bruises in a small thorn tree that was growing in a crevice in a rock that projected out of the foaming white wall that was the rimfall. The realisation hit him in much the same way as an icy hammer. He shuddered. The tree gave a warning creak. Something blue and blurred shot past him, dipped briefly into the thundering waters and whirred back and settled on a branch near Rincewind's head. It was a small bird with a tuft of blue and green feathers. It swallowed the little silver fish that it had snatched from the fall and eyed him curiously. Rincewind became aware that there were lots of similar birds around. They hovered, darted, and swooped easily across the face of the water, and every so often one would raise an extra plume of spray as it stole another doomed morsel from the waterfall. Several of them were perching in the tree. They were as iridescent as jewels. Rincewind was entranced. He was, in fact, the first man ever to see the rimfishers, the tiny creatures who had long ago evolved a lifestyle quite unique even for the disc. 
Long before the Kralians had built the circumfence, the Rimfishers had devised their own efficient method of policing the edge of the world for a living. They didn't seem bothered about Rincewind. He had a brief but chilling vision of himself living the rest of his life out in this tree, subsisting on raw birds and such fish as he could snatch as they plummeted past. The tree moved distinctly. Rincewind gave a whimper as he found himself sliding backwards, but managed to grab a branch. Only sooner or later he would fall asleep. There was a subtle change of scene, a slight purplish tint to the sky. A tall, black-cloaked figure was standing on the air next to the tree. It had a scythe in one hand. Its face was hidden in the shadows of the hood. "'I have come for thee,' said the invisible mouth, in tones as heavy as a whale's heartbeat. The trunk of the tree gave another protesting creak, and a pebble bounced off Rincewind's helmet as one root tore loose from the rock. Death himself always came in person to harvest the souls of wizards. "'What am I going to die of?' said Rincewind. The tall figure hesitated. "'Pardon?' it said. "'Well, I haven't broken anything, and I haven't drowned. So what am I about to die of? You can't just be killed by death.' "'There has to be a reason,' said Rincewind. "'To his utter amazement, he didn't feel terrified any more, "'for about the first time in his life he wasn't frightened. "'Pity the experience didn't look like lasting for long. "'Death appeared to reach a conclusion. "'You could die of terror,' the hood intoned. "'The voice still had its graveyard ring, "'but there was a slight tremor of uncertainty.' "'Won't work,' said Rincewind smugly. "'There doesn't have to be a reason,' said Death. "'I can just kill you.' "'Hey, you can't do that. It'd be murder.' The cowled figure sighed and pulled back its hood. Instead of the grinning Death's head that Rincewind had been expecting, he found himself looking up into the pale and slightly transparent face of a rather worried demon of sorts. "'I'm making rather a mess of this, aren't I?' it said wearily. "'You're not death! Who are you?' cried Rincewind. "'Scrofula.' "'Scrofula?' "'Death couldn't come,' said the demon wretchedly. "'There's a big plague on in Pseudopolis. "'He had to go and stalk the streets, so he sent me.' "'No one dies of scrofula. I've got rights. I'm a wizard.' "'All right, all right. This was going to be my big chance,' said Scrofula. "'But look at it this way. If I hit you with this scythe, "'you'll be just as dead as you would be if death had done it. Who'd know?' "'I'd know,' snapped Rincewind. "'You wouldn't. You'd be dead,' said Scrofula, logically. "'Piss off,' said Rincewind. "'That's all very well,' said the demon, hefting the scythe. "'But why not try to see things from my point of view?' This means a lot to me, and you've got to admit that your life isn't all that wonderful. Reincarnation can only be an improvement. <gasps> his hand flew to his mouth, but Rincewind was already pointing a trembling finger at him. Reincarnation, he said excitedly. So it is true what the mystics say. I'm admitting nothing, said Scrofula testily. It was a slip of the tongue. Now, are you going to die willingly or not? No, said Rincewind. Please yourself replied the demon. He raised the scythe. It whistled down in quite a professional way, but Rincewind wasn't there. He was in fact several metres below, 
and the distance was increasing all the time, because the branch had chosen that moment to snap and send him on his interrupted journey towards the interstellar gulf. "'Come back!' screamed the demon. Rincewind didn't answer. He was lying belly down in the rushing air, staring down into the clouds that even now were thinning. They vanished. Below, the whole universe twinkled at Rincewind. There was great Artuin, huge and ponderous and pocked with craters. There was the little disk moon. There was a distant gleam that could only be the potent voyager. And there were all the stars, looking remarkably like powdered diamonds spilled on black velvet. The stars that lured and ultimately called the boldest towards them. The whole of creation was waiting for Rincewind to drop in. He did so. There didn't seem to be any alternative. That is the end of The Colour of Magic by Terry Pratchett, and it was read by Nigel Planer.